Revelation chapter 9, the trumpet judgments continue with the opening of the bottomless pit. And I am really excited about this Bible study, but I got to warn you, it's pretty deep. Dad joke number one, just seeing who's listening. Okay, <clears throat> let's pray one more time and then we'll dive in. Father, we love you. No pun intended. We'll dive in. Yeah, exactly. See, I'm full of them today. Okay. Uh, Lord, we love you. Um, we say amen. Uh, we're excited that you're coming back. We're excited that you have made yourself known to us, that you've taken time to inspire people to write your word and then preserve it down through the ages that we can sit here today and study it and supernaturally get built up. We can't even really explain it. We just know that you use your word to make us stronger in our faith and more like you. We want to bear fruit to the glory of your name. So would you please lead and guide this time. Put your words on my lips and give us that unction of the Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, John begins, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, back in chapter 8, you'll remember, John saw something like a great burning mountain thrown into the sea. And then in verse 10, he, read a, he, he spoke of a great star that fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on the third of the rivers and the springs of water. But there's a notable difference about this star of Revelation chapter 9, verse 1 this morning. Did you notice it? It's the last phrase of that opening verse where John says, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. So this reference to a star seems to refer to a being of some kind. It is referred to as a him or a he. And I would suggest to you that this star is either Satan himself or some other high-ranking fallen angel. There's quite a few places in Scripture where angels are referred to as stars. Job 38, verse 7, for instance, when God is speaking to Job about creation, he says, The morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is commonly taken to be a reference to angels. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, John writes, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, whom we know is Satan from other parts of Revelation, Verse 4 says, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And we know that these are his angels from Revelation chapter 9, or chapter 12, verse 9, excuse me. So when John here writes about this fallen star that is referred to as a hymn, I strongly believe this is, again, a high-ranking angel or Satan himself, a, a demon as they are so often called. In fact, if you let your eyes just skip ahead down to verse 11, we read quite plainly of the angel of the bottomless pit. In fact, John even tells us his name. He says in Hebrew, his name is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. So we don't know who this angel is, but he's Abaddon. Dad joke number two. I'm here all week, stay with me. In all seriousness, in both languages, these names mean destruction or torment or destroyer, and we'll talk about these names a little bit later on. Verse 2 says, And he, this angel, this fallen star, opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened 
because of the smoke of the pit. It's possible that this is working in conjunction with the fourth trumpet of chapter 8, verse 12, where we see a third of the sun and a third of the skies being darkened. Don't know for sure, but it's possible. Um, and as you can imagine, a lot of times what people ask is, what is the bottomless pit? Now, if you've ever seen my kids eat, I could make a joke about them being the bottomless pit. But in a nutshell, the bottomless pit seems to refer to a specific place in or a specific compartment of the underworld or Hades where certain angels have been imprisoned for judgment. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus encounters a demon-possessed man, and as he's casting the demon out, the demon speaks and begs Jesus that he would not send them out into the abyss. That word, abyss, abyssos in the Greek, it's defined as bottomless, unbounded, the pit, the immeasurable depth, especially as the abode of demons. So it's the same thing. By the way, this idea of the pit, this appears all throughout Scripture. In about 80 different verses from 18 different books of the Bible, most notably Psalms, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, in Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel 31 and 32, it appears eight times there alone. Now, 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 6 both speak of demons or angels who are held in chains in a certain place until the time of judgment. Jude says, the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. 2 Peter 2.4 says, If God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, David Guzik points out that the specific Greek word translated hell in this verse is literally Tartarus. And in Greek mythology, Tartarus was a place of punishment for rebellious gods. Peter, he says, borrows this word, to speak of the place of punishment for the angels who sinned. Apparently, some fallen angels are in bondage, while others are unbound and active among mankind as demons. And I point out here that the word for hell is Tartarus, and I refer specifically to Hades and the underworld because this bottomless pit that we're reading about this morning is not necessarily hell as we think of it properly, in that it is not a final place of eternal torment. How do we know? Stay with me quickly. Revelation chapter 20, after the battle of Armageddon, right? Jesus has returned on a white horse. John says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But then John says, after these things, he must be released for a little while. And then after the millennium, John says, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. He goes out, he deceives the nations, he leads one final rebellion against God. But then in verse 10, the devil, we read, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where he is tormented day and night forever and ever. So the lake of fire is really what we think of when we're talking about 
hell proper. It's a final place of eternal torment and punishment. But this bottomless pit seems to be more of a temporary prison in Hades. Now, coming back to the Peter and Jude references, they both speak of angels who are being reserved for judgment or reserved for the judgment of the great day. It's possible that it isn't necessarily they're being held there until they are punished, but instead that they're being held there for the purpose of being used as part of God's judgment upon the earth. Because what we read about this morning in Revelation chapter 9 is a horde of demonic beings who are let loose upon the earth out of this bottomless pit. So perhaps the angels who sinned, they are being kept in reserve in the bottomless pit until this time. Verse 3 says, Out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. And they were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. So at least the 144,000 that we read about from in chapter 7, maybe more. And we know that these are not natural locusts because it's not natural that locusts would not go after the grass of the earth or any green thing. If these were natural locusts, that's exactly what they would go after. Also, again, let your eyes drop down to verse 11. Note this little detail. It says that these beings had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. But check this out, Proverbs 30, 27 says, the locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. So if locusts have no king, but these beings do have a king over them, and they're not going after what locusts would normally go after, I would say that what we have here is something unnatural or supernatural. And honestly, all you got to do is read John's description of these beings. We'll start reading in verse 7. He says, The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. And please note that I'm very specifically emphasizing John's repeated use of the word like. I don't believe that what John is doing here is providing a literal description of these beings. I believe that John is doing the best he can while writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to provide us with a first century description of what he sees and it is grotesque and it is bizarre and it is horrific and it is otherworldly. David Guzik writes, the total impact of this picture is one of unnatural and awesome cruelty. Robert H. Mount says, there can be no specific answer to the question of exactly who or what is symbolized by the plague of locusts. All we can know for sure is that in the period immediately before the end, the wicked will be subjected to a time of unprecedented demonic torment 
exactly how this will take place will remain unknown until disclosed by history itself. Notice the last phrase of verse 10. John says their power was to hurt men for five months. But back in verse 8, he writes, they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. This will be so bad, verse 6 says, that in those days men will seek death and they will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. Now what does that mean in verse 6? Is this just hyperbole that John is speaking in that the general state of affairs on earth will be so bad that men would rather die than be tormented by these beings? I would say that's possible. But I think it's also possible that God could, as part of his divine judgment during these five months, literally suspend the process of death and men will not be able to die. Maybe this is finally the biblical justifications for the zombie outbreak. Look, here's what I know. I think as we read this, we should realize that anything is possible during this time. This will be a point in time unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And all I know is you will not want to be here. And the good news is for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we won't be. By God's grace and according to his promises, we're going to get airlifted out of here. Back in chapter 4, we see the church safely in heaven during this time. Now another question people ask is, when will the bottomless pit open? Scripture doesn't tell us exactly, so all we can do is speculate, but I will suggest a couple of things. Chapter 11, verse 7 refers to the Antichrist as the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Chapter 17, verse 8 also says the beast will ascend out of the bottomless pit. So twice we read of the beast, the Antichrist, as ascending out of the bottomless pit. Remember that the term anti or the prefix anti in antichrist doesn't necessarily mean against Christ. It means in place of Christ or instead of Christ. This coming global political leader will initially appear on the scene very much as a savior figure. He will be a messianic figure and the world will embrace him as such. But as a counterfeit Jesus, one of the things that Scripture seems to indicate is that what will happen with this figure is there will be a counterfeit resurrection. In Revelation chapter 13, John says, I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Verses 12 and 14 mention the same idea again. John refers to people worshipping the beast whose deadly wound was healed. Verse 14 says, the beast was wounded by the sword and lived. David Guzik writes, this is a head wound, a mortal wound, not a superficial injury. This is truly an antichrist who even imitates Jesus in his death and resurrection. There's only been two people in scripture who are referred to as the son of perdition. 
One was Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. And we know that there came a point in time in his betrayal of Jesus, both Luke tells us this and John tells us this, that Satan took bodily possession of Judas Iscariot. The only other person in Scripture who's called the son of perdition is the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, And there are some people who believe, I happen to be among them, that the Antichrist will initially appear on the scene as a messianic figure. He will be the ultimate winner. He will have answers. He will bring peace and prosperity. And initially will only be under the influence of Satan, used as a pawn. But a time will come, like with Judas, when Satan takes bodily possession of the Antichrist. And perhaps... That is in connection with this mortal wound, this deadly injury being healed. Let me read to you one more reference. Revelation 17 verse 8 says, The beast that you saw was and is not will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel. And what some people see in this, again, I happen to be among them, is the reference to he was, meaning he had been alive, then is not, meaning he died, and then he will ascend out of the bottomless pit, being a reference to the counterfeit resurrection that will cause the world to marvel at him and follow him as a god. And many people believe it will be at this moment that Satan will enter the Antichrist, much the same way he did with Judas Iscariot. And that when, then the, when the Antichrist comes back to life from the dead, that at that point, he will be Satan incarnate. And that's when his true colors are ultimately revealed. He goes into a rebuilt Jewish temple, declares himself to be God, demands that the world worship him as God, and begins the worst slaughter of Jews and Christians that has ever happened on planet Earth. Now, why go into this? Because it's really encouraging. No, I'm just kidding. Why go into this this morning? Because... Some people see this idea of him ascending out of the bottomless pit being in connection with the bottomless pit being opened in Revelation chapter 9. That maybe, maybe, this is happening sometime around the midpoint of the Great Tribulation. But again, we don't know that for sure from a timing standpoint. It's just kind of fun to speculate. Uh, last question. Where is the bottomless pit? California. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Theories abound about this. Um, some people say it's the Bermuda Triangle. Others say it's the Darvasis gas crater in Turkmenistan, which is referred to as the door to hell. Uh, some say it's Mel's Hole in Ellensburg, Washington, or the Kola Superdeep Borehole in Russia, uh, or one of the several mysterious craters that have been opening up in Siberia in recent years. You can go check that out. It's pretty fascinating. One very popular theory goes like this, that anytime the Bible refers to heaven, it's, heaven is referred to as being above us or over us or in the sky. Whenever the Bible refers to hell or Sheol or Gehenna, it's referred to as being under us or below us. Sometimes the expression, uh, the heart of the earth is used. Now, these are not physical locations, right? In other words, we can't get into a rocket ship and just keep flying and flying and flying, and eventually we reach heaven. And contrary to some popular urban legends out there, 
You can't just keep digging and digging and digging until you eventually reach hell. However, it does seem like somewhere in the spiritual realm that the location of heaven corresponds to being over us and the spiritual location of Hades corresponds to being below us. And so one very popular theory is that if hell or Hades is located in the spiritual realm somewhere near the center of the earth, then because of the earth's gravitational pull, once a person started falling into this pit, they would never stop. They would essentially become trapped in this loop of endless falling and just sort of begin to oscillate and never be able to break free of the earth's gravitational pull. Again, that's a theory, but there might be some merit to it. Uh, now, one other interesting theory Hang on a second. Let me just don my... This will be the clip that goes viral on YouTube. Just kidding. My tinfoil hat. <clears throat> One other possible theory is that the research being conducted with the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, in CERN, or at CERN, which is the European Organization for Nuclear, Nuclear, Nuclear Research, which is just outside of Geneva, Switzerland, may one day rip open a hole between the physical realm and the spiritual realm, or light matter and dark matter. It's pretty fascinating to me that science has begun to speak in terms of light and dark. Scientists now postulate that about 95% of the universe is composed of what they call dark matter or antimatter. Now, they don't know exactly what it is or what will happen if we tap into it. It's kind of like the elusive God particle or the Higgs boson. Check this out. So far, they have spent 21 billion pounds, 20, over 26 billion dollars building this particle accelerator in an attempt to harness this energy and, among other things, essentially replicate the Big Bang. One article states, the LHC is the world's largest and most powerful particle collider, most complex experimental facility ever built, and largest single machine in the world. Interestingly, CERN refers to itself as the gateway to the universe. The director for research and scientific computing at CERN, a man by the name of Sergio Bertolucci, said, out of this door might come something, or we may send something through. And make no mistake, I personally believe that technology will play a huge role in what we read about concerning end times event in the Bible. Don't forget that Satan's original desire was to be like God, who is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. But Satan is a created being. He's limited. He can't be in more than one place at a time. He can't know all things. So the only way he could become God-like would be through artificial means, creating an artificial omniscience or an artificial omnipresence. I think it's worth noting kind of as an aside that according to some sources, Larry Page, the former CEO of Google, has said that he wants to create a digital god that would understand everything in the world and give you back the exact right thing instantly. It's also worth noting 
that the internet, the World Wide Web that has connected the world was first invented at CERN in 1989 by a British scientist named Tim Berners-Lee. Twitter hero and tech giant Elon Musk, you know this, refers to the technology at CERN as being demonic. Now, here's where it gets a little bizarre. Why do they have outside the CERN building in Geneva, why do they have a statue of Shiva, right? Shiva is known as the destroyer within the Hindu trinity. Remember what the name Apollyon means? It means destroyer. From various articles, we read this. A large portion of CERN is located within the territory, territory of St. Genie Pouilly. Pouilly comes from the Latin Apollosium, and it is probable that under Roman occupation, the village temple was dedicated to Apollon or Apollo. By the way, the name Apollo in Homeric Greek is Apollon. In Doric, it's Apellon. There's a famed linguist by the name of R.S.P. Beeks who actually rejects the idea that the name Apollo is even Greek. He's done a lot of studies with the Proto-Greek language, which was a language that existed before the written Greek language, and he says it's the name Apollyon. Thus, the Greeks most often associated Apollo's name with the Greek verb to destroy. Apollo was worshipped throughout the Roman Empire. Apollo Virtutus was worshipped, among other places, at Haute-Savoie. Haute-Savoie borders both Switzerland and Italy. To the north is Lake Geneva. Here's a picture of it compared to the location of CERN. Apollo was said to have slain a serpent or a dragon who lived there and protected, check this out, the navel of the earth, the Apollo temple was said to be the key to the underworld, and many speculate that it once stood where CERN is today. Now, just for grins, um, I did some digging, right? And I started asking myself, I wonder what other organizations are headquartered in Geneva? How about some of these? the World Economic Forum Headquarters, the World Trade Organization, the World Council of Churches, the World Federation of United Nations, the World Health Organization, the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans, and Intersex Association, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, the Internet Governance Forum, the UN Watch. Now, I got one of these for you guys. We're going to be selling them in the foyer today, right? I mean, can I just say, don't you think that's an awful lot of organizations that have a stated, recognizable, one-world focus to be headquartered in the very same city where they're trying to open a hole to another dimension that's historically associated with the key to the underworld? Now, for all the people I haven't lost, right? Coming back to the book of Revelation, notice that this star, or this angel in verse 1, is given the key to the bottomless pit. This implies a couple of things. First of all, it implies permission, right? If this angel has to be given the keys to the bottomless pit, that means someone else is in charge of it. Who would that be? Revelation 1, verse 18, Jesus says, I have the keys of Hades 
and of death. You know, the idea of Satan being the ruler of hell is really one of the worst myths that anybody could buy into. Matthew 25, 41 speaks of the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan is not in charge of hell. Satan will be hell's foremost victim. You know who's in charge of hell? God is in charge of hell. Hell is God's place of just and holy and divine punishment. So whoever this fallen star is in Revelation 9, he has to be given the key to the bottomless pit. It speaks of permission, but it also speaks of purpose. One of the most amazing things to keep in mind as we read the book of Revelation is that everything is happening to accomplish God's purpose. Check this out. In chapter 17, by this point, John's talking about the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, the whore of Babylon. And here's what he writes. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. But then he says, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose until the words of God are fulfilled. Let your eyes drop down to verse 13 in chapter 9. This is where we're going to be next week. So this is a little bit of a sneak preview. Revelation 9:13. look what John writes. He says, When the sixth angel sounded, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now watch verse, seven, uh, verse 15. Excuse me. John says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. That's incredible to me. The whole reason these angels were prepared was for this day and this month and this hour and this judgment of God. And whoever this fallen angel is of Revelation chapter 9, who was given the key to the bottomless pit, you can be assured of two things. It is only by God's permission, and it is all to accomplish God's purpose. Listen, which should remind us of something. Everything happening on planet Earth right now in the state of California or with the government or with the upcoming election or in the school system, it is only by God's permission and it is all to accomplish God's purpose. We understand that God is in control, right? That Listen, God's not worried. God's not afraid. God's not having an anxiety attack. I'd say this, God's not even complaining. God is sitting on his almighty throne going, yep, that's exactly what I knew was going to happen. Things are going exactly according to the way I foreordained it. Nothing has taken me by surprise. And it is all happening to accomplish my purpose. Now check this out. Then how come we as his people worry and get afraid and complain as though he's not in control? God is in control of everything. 
And the only things that are happening right now are all happening to accomplish his purposes and for his glory. The book of Revelation is such a powerful reminder of that great truth. The section concludes this morning in verse 12 where John writes, One woe is past. Behold, still two more woes are coming after these things. Woe. No pun intended, right? But it's still not over yet. Next week, we see the activity that takes place surrounding the great river Euphrates. So let me encourage you to go ahead and read the rest of the chapter all the way through and then come back and join us next Sunday as we continue the book of Revelation. All right, we're going to pray. We're going to have our worship team come and get in place this morning. But I always like to, on the heels of a message like this, just make sure everybody knows that that if you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you can do that this morning, right? You can leave here today knowing that the things that are going to happen in the book of Revelation, you're going to escape from by giving your life to Jesus and inviting him into your heart to be your Lord and Savior and accept the payment for the punishment of your sins that, listen, he's already paid. He's already paid. All you have to do is believe it. This is the great work of God. God isn't looking for us to, to be good or, or to go out and, you know, reach a certain number. He just, want, just, he just says, believe. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And so this morning as we close, uh, we'll have prayer partners up front who would love to pray with you. I'll be available in the back as you make your way out of the sanctuary. Love to pray with you. So. Let's bow our heads and uh, let's just invite the Lord to work during these last few moments of worship. Heavenly Father, we, um, we love you. We humble our hearts before you. And we would just ask that you would, in these last few moments, just continue to woo us to your side, to bring us to your altar this morning. Lord, it, this is one of those passages today that if, that if we don't see how in charge of things you are and realize that we just need to hit our knees before you. Lord, we just are so grateful that you have chosen to spare us, that you chose to sacrifice yourself that we would not have to go through these things. Thank you so much, Jesus. We love you. Pray for every heart in the room today. Lord, if there are those you would like to draw to yourself, please do so. And just give people the courage by your Holy Spirit to just step out and seek prayer, counsel, whatever it might be for whatever's going on in their life. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.